All right, um, we started recording. No need to record Todd talking trash. Chris, you don't need to hear anything about that. I'm gonna maybe be a good question to ask you, how does one develop the capacity to back squat 185, 50 times? But if we have time, you can answer that. Let me do a brief introduction for you here. Can you guys all see Chris? He's maybe on a different screen. Let me see if I can, um, you guys should all be able to, you can make him the bigger picture if you want, but doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, Chris has coached at this point, dozens and dozens of games athletes. He runs the aerobic capacity seminar, which I highly recommend you check out. I saw him on Watt on the Waves last year and learned in those three hours more than I had learned in many, many trainings and specialty seminars. Great stuff. And I'm really excited to have him on here. So, Chris, welcome to our mentor group. Oh, thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. That Watt on the Waves, boy, what a what an experience that was, huh? It was amazing. And um, as you may or may not know, Fern and I will be back on as well as my wife, Roz. And we saw that you will be on. And we recommend all of you guys check it out. Because, again, are you doing three seminars again? Do you know what you'll be doing? I, I don't know. Um, I do know that they reached out and asked um, which coaches that I collaborate well with, which I gave them Dave Durrani and Chad Vaughn. Uh, so I do know that they, um, Dave and Chad both have agreed to also attend, which can be really cool, especially if I have an opportunity to collaborate with one or both of them in some type of uh, content presentation. Be great. Yeah, I interviewed Austin for today's episode. It went up today about Water on the Waves, and he mentioned Dave, Chad, and of course, you know, the Mayhem team will be there. So if you're interested in training with some of the fittest in the world, it's pretty great. You know, that was, um, I'm glad that you brought, I mean, that those three one hours. So they told me originally that I can do three one hour classes, but they would all be the same. And you know, I, I always feel like when you're given those opportunities that you really should respect what you're being given and deliver to a maximal ability. And I find that that a lot of people in the early days when they're starting out, even anybody in a job, you know, they get paid a certain amount of salary. And after being on that job for a year or two years, even though they haven't taken on more responsibility, for some reason they think that they deserve more money. Um, I look at it where I get these opportunities always, and I want to respect the fact that if I got an opportunity like that eight years ago, how would I treat it today? And I always look at it where I want to sit. And that's what I did. I sat until those lectures were around one in the afternoon. I sat in my cabin and wrote and rehearsed and practiced content. I wanted it to be as best it could possibly be. And that's why I wrote three different one-hour pieces. Because I wanted to respect the people, one, that were showing up. But also, let's not forget the value of this opportunity. And you have to be reflective when you look at value. Well, I think that's one thing that everybody loves about you is your, you know, as much as you've grown within the CrossFit community, you are one of the most humble individuals I know. And it's very clear from be, having been a participant there that you put the time in. 
don't know if you remember, but we were walking towards it one day and all of us were completely lost on the way because the ship was so huge, but we didn't find it. So I wanted to give our members the opportunity to talk to an expert such as yourself. And I asked them, you should be able to see the chat, but as you answer the questions, I will kind of moderate and look for the next one. And if it's something you want to follow up on with that specific individual, we'll let them come off <clears throat> and, and dive a little deeper into the question. Does that work for you, Chris? It's great. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's just start with Dave Mitchell's question. Dave's on here in full uniform. It looks like, um, not, not arresting the bad guys, but sitting there. Do you change your approach to training as it gets closer to the open or if you have another event coming, uh, maybe like a sanctional event or, or the games? Uh, not for the open, no. Um, so I, I definitely don't do it for the open. Uh, for sanctional events... Whoever's um sorry, hold on. Whoever's um off mute, can you guys just mute? There we go. All right, Chris. Sorry about that. You're still there, you're unmuted. Go ahead. So sanctionals is a whole different thing. I mean, part of it is is that athletes are now looking at sanctionals a little differently. Um not just necessarily about the qualification and getting a bid into the games, but they can make prize money. Um, and so in some cases, athletes are peaking and tapering going into a sanctional event. Um, and that historically hasn't been the case that athletes would do competitions as part of training. And now they're breaking up the season and targeting specific events. And I see that in terms of the elite level athletes now where they have a different season than other athletes. The games, the games, absolutely. The games, uh, the trigger is completely different for every athlete. Um, and it depends upon their strengths and weaknesses and how I program. Um, what makes it tough now is this new format uh, for coaches. It's really, really difficult because in essence, you have different tracks and different programs for every individual athlete. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I have scaled way back. I, I can't manage effectively athletes and continue progressing them in the direction we both want to go unless I give them more attention and time. Great. A great answer there. Satisfied with that answer, David? Let's go on to Catherine's question. Her question is, what is one thing that we should be incorporating more into our average CrossFitters programming to see the highest benefit to aerobic capacity? I think the big thing is, is that we need to slow people down. Um, and a lot of times in CrossFit and in classes, what we do is we focus on intensity and we're trying to drive adaptation in the direction of intensity, right? We're trying to make people stronger, trying to make faster. Um, but in order to do that, we have to allow them a chance to recover in between those efforts, right? So you could take simple movements such as weightlifting and look at five by five back squat, and we're giving them a passive rest in between those five reps. 
Um, and the reason is, is because the focus is on the five repetitions and the load that we're lifting. If we knock them down to one minute in rest, then they will have to sacrifice the number of reps, right? They won't be able to do five or they'll have to reduce the load that they're lifting. In CrossFit, we cannot control the amount of recovery time that we get in workouts. And so if we're always training around passive recoveries, then we're truly not prepared. What we should be doing a lot more of is telling athletes to move during recoveries at lower levels of intensities, essentially creating different gears than, you know, pedal to the metal, let's just rock and roll and grip and rip. We should really be focusing on, you know, active recoveries. Um, maybe the next time you get and do a five by five back squat, maybe what you should be doing is a three minute, 500 meter row. I like that. And you talked a little bit about that on the podcast as well. And I think that's great stuff that we can utilize. Jose wants to know about your Excalibur program. Oh. Um, so the program is, is uh, a, I partnered up with Jesse Burdick, uh, who is a really, truly best in class uh, in powerlifting. Uh, very well known. I met him at a, uh, a training clinic at Reebok about five years ago. And I was so dazzled by Jesse Burdick. Um, and I ended up having dinner with him that night. And what was fascinating is that I was sharing my concepts and how I program my methodologies um, and just how I relate um, workouts into performances and just the way I assess athletes. Ironically, in lifting, he does the exact identical thing. It was really something that was seamless and it was easy to do. We communicated well. And so we kicked around this idea that wouldn't it be something that if we did a study that basically said that, you know what, if you're an endurance athlete and you do small doses of lifting, that I actually can make you stronger, but I will also make you faster, let's say in the movement of running. Likewise, I was saying, wouldn't it be interesting is that if I give small doses of, of running to a strength-based athlete who is on a strength protocol, wouldn't it be interesting is if they got stronger while incorporating a running program? And so we talked about it. I talked to CrossFit about it and possibility of doing this study, which they didn't express any interest in doing it. And so then we said, let's just do it ourselves. Well, in any study, what happens is, is that you're going to have to pay people to do the study and you end up potentially risking or compromising your data. So we turned around and we said, you know what, let's charge $200 a person. And what we will do is charge people so that their expectation on strength and endurance is as high as it's going to be, right? And what we were looking for was the data and the improvement. And we're going to release the numbers. I mean, that's part of what I've always done is release the information because I believe what we're doing in the CrossFit space um, as a community is leading edge right? We are creating a level of fitness in a population of people that is extraordinary, in my opinion. And so we just completed the first round. We had 500 people go through. 
So it's a huge data point and we'll publish what strength improvement numbers came up and what uh, improvements came in their 400 meter time and their mile times. Very good. Robin wants to know, what are your favorite running skill drills to add to CrossFit warmups to help improve athletes' running technique? Wait, can you say it, it broke up a little there? What are your favorite running skills and drills to add to CrossFit warmups to help improve athletes' running technique? So my number one, I really, really, I love doing things such as jump ropes beforehand. And I love the idea of doing double unders or single unders uh, and then dropping the rope and going for um, a, a run interval. Um, it teaches people muscle memory. Um, the foot strike when you're jumping rope is, is landing on that midfoot, forefoot strike. Um, and you get that, that muscle memory when you go into a, a short interval. Um, I really like that. If we took that a, a step further, I like the idea of, of throwing in a ballistic exercise into uh, a run. Uh, so something like a uh, holding a plate overhead and doing an overhead jumping split lunge. Um, that forces a higher level of recruitment or a higher percentage recruitment of fast twitch fibers because of the increase in force. And then I love carrying that uh, uh, increased percentage of fast twitch fiber recruitment due to the ballistic into maybe even a sled push. Maybe what I'm doing is, is going into some kind of a, a short time domain sprint. Um, it gives me a lot more value in the workout because instead of training a small percentage of fast twitch fibers, I'm actually training a higher percentage of those fibers. I like those ideas. I like the, the combination of a plyometric, such as like say jumping rope um, into a, another movement, as well as a ballistic uh, into a, another movement. Um, keep in mind that other movement must be very similar in the movement pattern. From Mitch, drills to help with mindset in workouts that are challenging. He has a few athletes that don't handle going into the pain cave very well. So this is where an athlete has to take responsibility in a workout. And I always tell people that the number one thing that you must do when you look at a workout is you have to assess as an individual, how much time is it going to take me to do that workout? You also must look at that once you have that time domain. And if it's longer than three minutes, we know that we don't have enough energy to take it out fast and, and hang on in anything longer than three minutes. We must pace workouts that are three minutes and longer um, because that's the way, you know, we got to pace to maximize the consumption of our available energy. So knowing the time domain, that becomes critical because it defines our strategy. The other thing that we must do is we must identify the sticking point in every workout. So there is a sticking point in every workout. And what we must do is we have to prepare the body for that point so that we're not surprised. And a good example of that is, is Julie Fouché. Julie Fouché was my pick to win the games in 2015 before she, broke her, she pulled her Achilles. She um, 
the first workout I had her do was a 400 for time. And she calls me afterwards and she says, I want you to know I did your 400, um, but it took me three attempts. And I, I was shocked, like the three attempts to do to, to, to 400. And she told me, she says, well, you know, I lined up on the first one and somewhere in the middle, you know, I had a panic attack. And I'm like, wow, a panic attack. And she says, no, a real panic attack. And I'm like, what did you do? And she says, I, you know, I, I calmed down. And after about 30 minutes, I warmed back up again. And, and I did the 400. I'm like, but you said you did it three times. She's like, yeah, number two, I had another panic attack. And so she tells me that she did the same protocol. And she, you know, calmed down, warmed back up, and finally did the third time. And so I turn around and I asked her, I said, so can I ask, where did that panic attack occur? And she told me it occurred at 240 meters in on that 400. In every workout, like I said, there is a sticking point. And if you all think about, if you had to run a lap around the track as fast as you possibly can, where in that lap around the track would you encounter that uh-oh moment, that moment where it's like, man, this thing is now all of a sudden it got real. Maybe it's like negative thought. Maybe it's, you know, it's, it's, it's frustration, it's anger. But if you can make it past sticking point, close enough to home where you can finish. For me, my sticking point in the lap around the track is at 230 to 240 meters. Julie, interestingly enough, hers happened at two, these panic attacks happened at 240 meters. And the reason it is, is because I asked her, what was your game plan? And she says, what do you mean? I said, well, what was your game plan around the lap? And she says, Chris, it's just a lap around the track. Well, that tells me she didn't have a plan. So imagine when she got to that sticking point and her, you know, she's breathing through her ears and blood's coming down her eyes there is a mismatch between her perceived amount of pain and her actual pain. And the brain perceives that as we're in trouble and it creates a phantom fatigue. Hers manifested into a panic attack. You must always assess where that is at that point and the magnitude of that intensity. If you don't, you will underperform. You see that as athletes, they just turn down the switch and they shut it down. So in every workout, it is that way. If you look at a 10-round workout, you don't even need to know what the workout is. At what round do you feel that it's going to be the point where if I can get past this, I'm close enough to home where I can finish? For most, it's round seven and eight. If you can get through that eighth round, I know I could finish nine and 10. Four laps around the track. You finish lap three, you're golden. You have to assess that point. The second part of that is, is that if I, I have athletes that, elites that quit, they don't work hard. They define their high intensity based upon prior performances. I used to do Fran in three minutes, now I do it in two. Well, what makes you think you can't do it in 90 seconds? So I will write workouts for them that forces them to go out fast in the beginning. Meaning I want you through that first round of Fran and I want it done in, let's just give it time, a minute. If you don't, we're stopping and we're gonna restart. We're gonna do, 250 meter sprints on the track. And you know what? That first 50 meters better be under seven seconds or I'm stopping you and we're restarting. With Julie Fouché, one of the things that I did was is I broke workouts into four parts and I made part one, two, and four all the same. The third part, I had it make it really difficult. 
Meaning I wanted her to focus her attention when she looked at that workout and said, oh, that third part, that is the hardest part in this workout. I have to focus all my attention in that. But in reality, what I was doing was, is I was making it so the fourth part was actually the most difficult because now she was gassed where she would have normally quit. And the thing is, is since part one and two were the same as four, they would sit there at four and go, you know what? I think I could do it because I just did it two earlier times. And so I would write workouts in that way for her and it was highly effective. I pinpointed where I wanted her to focus her attention on in the workout because she wasn't good at it. I highlighted where the sticking point was. So it's from a box perspective, a coaching perspective, it sounds like there's two good lessons there. One, maybe when you're briefing at the whiteboard, you can kind of ask your members, hey, where in here do you feel like you're going to hit that? And once you get there, realize you're almost done and you know you can make it. But then also, yeah. secondly, and maybe some things we don't often do are get people to go. We've, I forget what we've called them before. I learned it from Connor, from Connor Murphy. And it would be like, you have to hit 30 calories on the assault bike in two minutes, or you have to repeat it at the end. So people would go balls out at first. And then you're like, shit, now I'm just in recovery mode for the rest yeah. of the workout. But it's an important lesson to learn, hey, you will survive. Right. I mean, that's part of it. So the other, so when we talk about the sticking point, there's, there's two sticking points normally in every workout. The one I just mentioned is metabolic. It's energy, right? And what you're saying is, is that at that sticking point with one lap to go in, let's say a mile for time, with one lap to go, what you're willing to do is go above your lactate threshold, above your maximum sustainable pace for that last lap. Essentially, you're in that death zone intensity, but because you're close enough to the finish, you can bring it home. The other thing is, is that you have a muscular sticking point as well. So if there's a 10 round workout or a, a 10 round workout and each round has a different movement, and let's say movement number in round number two, it's thrusters. For me, I would have to realize that I'm going to be struggling in that second round because my least favorite movement is thrusters. But if I get through that, now I'm good to go and I'm only dealing with a metabolic sticking point. So there's two issues in every workout. And if you don't prepare your brain for those, those, those sticking points, you underperform. It's called the hazard score, perceived exertion or perceived pain versus actual pain. That's a, that's a tough lesson to get people to understand, but I think it's super valuable. So let's move on to Matt's question. He wants to know your thoughts on nasal breathing. Aren't we supposed to be breathing that way? So, you know, it's interesting that there's everything in life, it seems like that we get things super complicated um, and we bypass the, the, the initial protocols that are, are the most important. Um, so first of all, I, I think nasal breathing has value. Um, it, 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 without a doubt, it does have value. It just depends on uh, when you are, are applying that value in your overall fitness and whether or not it should take precedence over something else. I mean, we don't have unlimited free time. And so should that be your number one priority? Uh, I am more concerned with, with athletes 
um, intercostal and diaphragm strength uh, and muscular stamina than I am with programming in nasal breathing and recovery through that math method. Um, most gymnasts and weightlifters fail because their, their diaphragm and intercostals are the weakest muscle in the body. They just haven't trained it. Um, and those athletes also don't have good rhythm in their breath. You know, one of the things that our brain to know is, is when is that next dose of energy coming? You know, is, is it a random breath? Meaning it's like if I am, you know, hyperventilating and then a long pause breath, it needs to be consistent. Swimmers, without a doubt, have the best breathing rhythm. If you think about it, if I breathe on my right side every stroke, then you know what? My brain knows when that next dose of oxygen is coming, that next dose of energy. But if it's random, it will never settle my muscles because it doesn't know when the next dose of energy is coming. So training the rhythm or the consistency of the breath, that cycle of the breath, for example, I made a comment that Fraser knows if people are hyperventilating or not. He knows it by the movement of their chest. The rhythm of the breath is key. The other thing is, is that if we look at workouts and we're trying to breathe and nasal breathe, if we talk about intensity in terms of VO2 max, you cannot get a sufficient amount of oxygen through your nose on a intensity higher than 60% of your VO2. So if we're sticking with nasal breathing, the problem is, is that I am forcing myself to hurt real bad and training myself to go slow. And in my opinion, that is not the highest and best use of an athlete's time. And so that's where I sit and I, I struggle with it because it has value and I practice it myself. And but if I'm looking at an athlete and I'm, 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 I'm prioritizing their strengths and weaknesses, that would come way down on the list. So when you get a newer athlete, I think a lot of the coaches on here get the question of, okay, when do I breathe during this movement? And my response is typically at some point, just breathe. So do you find in like a lifting movement or butterfly pull-ups that you coach people to breathe at specific times, especially at the beginner level? Or is it just, hey, get in some sort of rhythm regardless if it's concentric or eccentric going on? So the thing is, is that when the load gets heavier, the movement requires you to brace. You can't breathe through it. So it's mostly about awareness. So let's say that we're doing, let's say we're doing 21 thrusters and then we're about to go into a set of 21 pull-ups. What we have to be aware of is, is that are we in control of our intensity or out of control of our intensity? And the breath is the tell, right? Our aerobic system is our oxygen. And so if we are hyperventilating in the beginning of a workout and we have you know, uh, another 10 minutes to go, then we have to be aware of that hyperventilation and awareness is critical because we either in those moments we voluntarily slow down or what happens is we see it people hunched over in their hands on their knees where they're involuntarily slow down and that's the biggest mistake you see in crossfit is that anybody who has their hands on their knees with involuntary slowdowns has already ruined their potential adaptation in that workout they've ruined it and why would we have athletes that are intentionally ruining or limiting their potential adaptation? 
It's a waste of their time. We need to train them to be aware of the breath, that the breath is the tell. And if you are not close enough to finishing, then you better get back in control of the breath so that the, muscle, the muscles can settle. It's always funny to me, you see people shaking their arms out, you know? And it's because their muscles are oxygen starved. Why don't you focus on getting back in control of your breath and then the muscles will then follow. It's the breathing, it's the oxygen, it's the aerobic system that is about awareness. That's the most important thing. So there are times, like me, 95 pound thruster, I cannot breathe through, it's too heavy for me. So I hold my breath and I come out of those thrusters and I gotta wait for a while because I am hyperventilating. Hyperventilating is the sign that your demand for oxygen is exceeding what, it supply, what you can supply. It's about awareness. Yeah, it's interesting. I just came from jujitsu practice earlier and I was telling my partner, I listen to how hard you're going and I chill yeah. out. So when you're done, you're done. All right, let's go, done. On. let's go on to Daniel's questions. He knows of your past and he said he had a lot of ex-runners in class that have long time running injuries. What's a good way to reintroduce them to running painlessly? I think because a lot of them are scared. They know what their body feels like. How can we get them back into running in a painless fashion rather than always just having them scale to rowing or biking or skiing? Yes, yeah, so that's a really a tricky thing. So I work with a lot of master's athletes and, and we have to provide options for them that is something other than running. Like Rich Froning, for example, you know, he has no cartilage in one of his knees. And so we have to come up with, with other ways to, to help um, train that movement of running without actually running. And that's one of the reasons why Rich does a lot of standing biker workouts. Um, he does a lot just as if you were riding a road bike or a mountain bike climbing up a mountain. You're out of the saddle and, and you're in a much more upright uh, standing posture. Um, the other thing that's of value is, is running uphill. Uh, running uphill is, is much less stressful. So this is why the air runner and the true form are so valuable is because essentially on those two products, you're running uphill at around a 6% grade meaning that your stride length isn't as long, you're not overstriding, overreaching, overextending your front foot. Um, your impact is also softer because you're meeting the tread um, in a 6% in a rise. So we end up incorporating a lot of that type of, of training. Um, the problem is, is not everybody has access to those. And so what we would typically do is have people do slow, you know, like intervals running up a hill um, for a two to three minute time domain with a slow walk jog down to the bottom. A lot of people, unfortunately, don't have those available to them as well. So what we'll end up doing is types of hybrid types of, of workouts. So, for example, we will do a lot of, let's say, a sled sprint um, short time domain and then what i'll do is i'll put them on a um an assault bike and what they're doing is they're just mostly using legs so i am essentially in the pushing of the sled where there's a high force demand creating a tremendous amount of lactic acid in the legs the running muscles and then what i'm doing is, is i'm using that similar movement pattern in an active recovery 
but doing it on a bike. So I will do, let's say, a 20-second maximal effort on the sled, and then what we'll do is we'll put them on the bike, and they'll do a recovery for three minutes. And I get a huge amount of crossover with that value. I'll do multiple rounds. One creates the fatigue, the other clears the fatigue. Five rounds, say 20 seconds on, four minutes of active recovery. Well, that leads right into Gretchen's question. And her question is, you know, she heard you talk about PVC presses with the handstand push-up. We talked about it. Spencer yeah. Handel talks about it on an upcoming episode, actually, that we have going, up, going out next week. Oh, that's cool. How do you choose what types of active recovery movements you choose to pair with the movement itself in order to increase the capacity? So we use active recovery for two things. We do it to extend the amount of, of time an athlete is moving. So athletes have limitations, um, uh, in muscular stamina. And one of the reasons why we run into muscular stamina problems is because CrossFit athletes will typically do a passive recovery after an effort versus an active recovery. And so what we do is we incorporate a PVC as a way of forcing an athlete to address a muscular stamina weakness. If we never challenge our, our muscle fibers to recover on the fly, then what's gonna happen is, is that as your fibers fatigue and your brain shuts them off and recruits the next batch, eventually it's gonna circle back down, back to the original grouping of fibers. Well, if you haven't gone long enough, those fibers will eventually have a muscular contraction failure, essentially a cramping, and you're done. That's why marathon runners run 150 miles in a week as elites because they don't want 26.2 to be a stamina issue. Now, the other thing that, that CrossFitters and why we use these, these clearance type workouts or active recovery is to improve an athlete's ability to clear lactate in a localized muscle group through performing a particular movement. So what we know is, is that as we move, and if we move fast enough and long enough, a muscle will create lactic acid, lactate and these fatigue-causing properties. And if we keep moving long enough and fast enough, eventually it goes into our bloodstream. But we know in short durations, it's localized. So if I create lactate in any movement, um, I want to combine that with a clearance movement that is something similar to the one that just created the fatigue for the purpose of accelerating the body or that muscle's ability to clear lactate at a faster rate so that we can do more work. So it's twofold. We do lactate clearance workouts, PVC, to extend the length of the workout, right, to force the athlete to move longer in the active recovery, right, instead of sitting in a chair or standing around and doing nothing. And the other is, is that we're forcing the muscle that has just built up a tremendous amount of lactate and we're teaching that muscle group on how to actively clear that lactate so that they actually can recover faster. You mentioned marathon runners. I think at some point, everybody on this call will deal with someone who's at the box but wants to train for a marathon. Yeah. How, you know, and Matt asked a question in line with that. What are some good ways that as coaches we can support their goal, you know, be it a marathon, a triathlon, something extended period like that, but maintain intensity and effectiveness 
in class? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, the, the, we must, as coaches, we have to look at so, someone that walks in the door and wants to get good, let's say at a marathon, wants to get better. You have to look at the entire structure. Are there muscle groups that they are leaving behind where there's opportunity, right? So like I comment about Rich Froning, he was one of the easiest athletes that I've ever had in order to make better in the movement of running he ever did was sprinting, right? He just sprinted all the time. I slowed him down and I developed his slow twitch aerobic fibers. And you know what? In 10 weeks, he went from a six minute mile down to 541, just running two times a week. It was because he left behind his slow twitch running muscles. So I just developed them. If we have a whole um, spectrum of fibers, we don't want to limit uh, or ignore certain groupings of those fibers. We want to make sure that entire fiber spectrum is developed. If we look at a marathon runner and we look at what they've developed, you've got to assume that, you know what, their legs are optimized. Just assume that. So how are we going to make them faster? Well, what about the other parts of the body, the other muscle groups that are involved in the movement of running other than the legs? What about if we, through the protocols of CrossFit, we improve their body's ability, for example, this motion of when we run our arms. What if I have you on a rower and I actually can spend more time training this push-pull, right, or an assault bike? Can I improve the aerobic capacity of those other muscle groups and their ability to clear blood lactate? So remember, when that runner is running fast, they're generating lactate in the legs that eventually spills into the bloodstream lactate shuttle and it's going to move into all throughout the body it's just trying to find vacant slow twitch fibers to burn it off well what about through the protocols of crossfit we improve the body's ability to clear lactate in these non-leg muscles could that marathon runner run faster absolutely it can so that's the that's the value proposition you've got to look at the other movements and are they neglecting opportunity the second part of that is, is that it's aging athletes. So I'm 56, and if you watch me run, I run still like I'm a kid. And it is because normally, as we age, we lose range of motion and we lose lean muscle mass. And so you see older athletes. So from the age of 40 to the age of 70, your stride length gets cut by 50% because of those two things. The way I can preserve mine is I work my range of motion, but I also work on strength. I am interested in maintaining my ability to generate power. And I do that by lifting heavy. Runners, as they age, you know what they do? They go from doing 5Ks to 10Ks to marathons to ultras because they go from a long stride length to a short stride length because they have no ability to generate force and they have no range of motion. I've trained a few people through marathons, not in such an ideal way like you are describing, but I typically have some articles like Greg Amundsen who had run 100 miles through CrossFit training and a few other people. Do you have any good places we can direct our athletes to say, hey, you should still be using CrossFit as your foundation and incorporating some running throughout the week, but you don't need to run 100 miles to prepare for 
Yeah, so the thing, so here's the thing is that CrossFitters were general fitness athletes, right? We're not specialists. So at some point in time, we have to, to make a determination of whether or not a, a, an event such as a marathon puts you into more of a specialized category. So let's say you wanted to train for an Ironman, a full Ironman. You're a specialist. You're, you're no longer, you've got to pay attention to that specialty sport so that you don't underperform. Um, in my opinion, a marathon without a doubt is a specialty event and you have to prepare the body for that event. But you also don't want to neglect the, the added features that are going to keep you injury free and also balance out the development of the other non-muscle or non-use um, muscle fibers. You want to have a strength-based program. You want to have a high-intensity based protocol because the entire muscle fiber spectrum in a marathon is going to be taxed. And if you are not utilizing programming from a high intensity speed strength power standpoint, then part of your arsenal of fitness going into that event is going to limit your performance. And so I look at it where I, I am concerned where athletes don't put enough time on their feet. You have to do a longer run on the weekend to prepare the structure for what it's about to experience again so it's not surprised. The problem is, is that how do you do that with a conventional marathon training program? You can't because what, what do they do on the weekend? Oh, it's, it's 13 today. Next weekend, it's 14. Then it's 15. It goes all the way up to 18. In my opinion, I like to do weekend runs and it's a three-week rotating microcycle. I like doing the long run as a one-time event. The next workout, what I wanna do is I wanna break it up into half that quantity of your long run, where you're breaking it and you're doing a progressive run, easy to moderate to fast. Let's say three miles easy, two miles moderate, one mile fast. And then what I would do is take a, um, a long run distance equal to your long single day, but I would break it up into an AM PM workout, meaning I'm going to run eight miles in the morning and four miles in the evening. And for the body doing that, it's going to have the same cumulative effect. It just won't be so damaging. So I like rotating those every three weeks as I progress up my volume. And that's the way for a, a CrossFitter to, to stay, because stay healthy. All right, I'm not gonna take up too much more of your time. I wanna give you an opportunity to talk about the aerobic capacity seminar and of course your foundation. But I think this is a great question for a final question because we're all about coaching and you know bonding with our athletes and cultivating yeah. that great experience. Yeah. So Matt says you sound very personable, which you obviously are. Early on, did you find that you gained trust with your athletes through building relationships? or with delivering results? So it's, it, without a doubt, it's about results. Um, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I, I, this boy, so I met Camille uh, in, in June of 2013, and she had come to the track with Jason Kalipa. And at the end of this track workout, um, she comes to me and she says, um, so, you be my coach 
and we go to the game and and we 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 win and you stay my coach but if you you don't make me better then i'd never call you again and i was like wow like i was floored i wasn't even I, I mean, this was in June of 13 and I was driving home and I'm like, wow, that boy. But then I got to thinking about it. It's like, that's actually the truth that that's our job. Our number one job is to deliver performance. And, you know, back in 13, it was easy to do those things. That's why like working with Matt Frazier, it's very challenging because the easy stuff was gone three years ago. And I always find that, that if a coach is able to hang on to an athlete for a long amount of time, they're still delivering performance. And that is an amazing coach because the athlete is the one thing that is the testament to the value of that coach. Just like our members, members of a gym, if you can retain them, it says something about the gym. That's why when I go into a gym, I always ask, how long have you been a member here? because that tells you how good the program is. And so at the end of the day, what everybody is looking for is performance. They want performance, and if you are able to deliver that, they'll come back the following day. So at a box level, for these guys, for us as coaches, when someone is contemplating leaving, should we immediately think, hey, we're not providing them with performance improvements and sit down and discuss their goals where they started and show them that they are in fact making improvements? Yeah, I think that, so uh, I'll give you an example. So Sarah Sigmund's daughter, I coached her two years ago. She went to the games and she finished fourth that year uh, in Madison, but that run swim run, she finished a minute behind Sam Briggs. It was a monumental performance. And then she goes on to a retreat with Sam Briggs. And then next thing you know, she calls and she says, I'm, I'm leaving Tennessee. And I was so bummed by that. It was like, wow, like the amount of progress that was made in six months was, was, it was remarkable. And it really, that, it really hurt me as a coach. Um, and, and I reflected a lot on that. And I think that the mistake that I made with her was I didn't make her take ownership in, in most of her training, that I would take on that responsibility, right? She would submit in results, I would assess the results, and based on the results, here's the next plan. I think that it is a huge mistake for coaches to not have athletes take accountability in, in the game plan. My job as a coach, I've realized, is to write amazing programming and that maximizes the, the, the value of the time the athlete's willing to commit, right? Maximize that adaptation in that most efficient way. I also must explain the purpose of workouts. Why, why are we doing this? What's the focus? And so that they buy into it. But it's the athlete's job to own that workout and to perform in that workout. Um, and that's not my job. I'm not the guy that should be sitting there going, great job, because how do I know whether or not it was really that great? That's what the athlete should be determining. And if you're running a class with 30 people, there's no way on earth you know what all 30 are doing and whether or not they're working hard or easy. 
So I think it comes down to really athlete ownership and, and, and getting them to buy into the game plan and believing it. After they've decided to go, like Sarah, when she said, it's just like, you know what? All I could say is good luck to you. Where does that begin in a class? I think it comes with the start. I think that part is, is that a coach needs to be reinforcing that here's the game plan. This is what we're doing. This is the direction we're going on. Um, and this is why. But let's say, for example, we talk about those, like we brought up that, that like a lactate out, you know, the inactive recovery. What I, what I would do is if we had a class that was doing, let's say, um, you know, let's say we were taking a movement and we did 12 seconds. Let's say we did shoulder press, right? So let's say we took a plate and we did 25 pounds of 12 seconds of shoulder press, created fatigue, and then a PVC 48 seconds, slow recovery, five rounds, no rest. Let's say that we did that all as a class. And then next week, we're going to do the same workout. It's five rounds, 12 seconds of shoulder press with a plate. And then it's 48 seconds with the PVC. But now the difference is, is that the people who did that workout before, what we're going to tell them is this. You guys did this workout before. I need you to decide whether or not you want to work on your strength or you want to work on your recovery. And if you decide that you want to improve your ability to recover in a shoulder press, instead of doing your shoulder press today with a PVC, I want you to get a five pound weight. And what you're going to do is a very slow active recovery shoulder press with a five pound plate, because that's the direction of adaptation you want. You want to improve your recovery. If you want to improve your strength, your, your ability to tolerate fatigue, then we're going to focus on the intensity side. So Chris, you had 25 pounds. I want you to get 30 pounds and you're going to do 30 pounds today because that's the direction of the adaptation. Athletes, you guys pick which direction you want to go in, meaning you get them involved in the workout and making a choice of which direction they want to go in because that's how you get them to take ownership. We could also do Fran for the sole purpose of doing Fran to create blood lactate. And now the coach is going to write three movements on the board. At the end of Fran, I you're going to accumulate two minutes of one of these three movements at a very slow active recovery pace to train the body how to pull lactate out of the bloodstream and consume it as a fuel in one of these three movements. So you have a choice after Fran, you're going to do two minutes of active recovery PVC deadlift, active recovery floor press, active recovery um, uh, uh, shoulder press, right? There's your three choices, and you're going to pick one of those. Get them involved. My point is, is if we are always pushing and showing people what to do, they take no ownership. Back to Sarah Sigmund's daughter. I was teaching her transitions, and she tells me, I can't do a swim to run transition and get my shoes on. I have to wear socks. And I told her, I said, okay, so if you wear socks, how fast can you do it? And she says, I don't know, I probably can put them on in 30 seconds. And so I took off my shoes and I set them up, you know, how to do a trend. And I'm good at this, right? I could get both shoes on wet in under five seconds and start running. And the mistake I made was, is I should have gone head to head against her and did it my way against her way and been 200 meters down the road 
and said, okay, so are you willing to tolerate blisters or do you want to make up 30 seconds of time? That's the difference. If, if we're always pushing versus involving, then there's a different level of connection. I love it. It takes me longer to put on my shoes every morning than that. So I'm going to, I'm going to start giving it a try. But okay, I have a question. I have a question for you. Can you put your shoes on and tie them while standing? Oh, that sounds like another wager for me and Todd. Um, um, I wear Velcro shoelaces. So yes. Boy. No, no, I don't. Um, that's like a <laughs> I will, I will definitely challenge myself to do that. Is that, is that a sign of the ultimate athlete if they can put their shoes on while standing? Because if so, maybe no, that's the sign. That's the sign of old age or young age. <laughs> Meaning you can do it standing because you have to bypass flexibility. That's, I don't know. I think I'm still young. That's you know what? I check that every now and then. I'm like, okay, I still got it. Yeah, you got to put your socks, socks and shoes and tie them standing, both feet. All right, group, you heard it from the man right there. That's the challenge. That's the homework for the week. We want to see you posting that in the group. Chris, before you get off, please tell everybody where we can, A, you know, CrossFit has changed their model. It's no longer specialty course. It's a preferred course. Yeah. Where we can find out a little more about that. And, of course, the, the ultimate trail run is coming up. Actually, one of our – she was on her way to Pearl Harbor right now, but she also wanted me to make sure you knew she was volunteering Tuesday – um, and helping out with the kids. And one of our members, Bethany, um, owns CrossFit Kappa over on, on Kuwai. So we have a lot of uh, ties to your foundation. Can you tell everybody about those two things? So aerobiccapacity.com um, is the website. And yeah, so CrossFit did change things up. Uh, they went away from these specialty courses and now calls it a preferred course, um, essentially giving the prefers, preferred course providers more autonomy. I mean, we're able to do um, a lot of uh, things that we were not able to do in the past, such as changing content of the course, um, the structure, the flow of a course. Um, one of the things that I do with my courses, I teach all of them. And our sport is evolving in an incredible rate. And the content of these courses should be evolving at the same rate. For example, pacing. You know, pacing, like we talked about earlier, it's a huge buzzword in the sport. But in 2013, I was bashed for pacing. Um, providing people rest uh, in intervals. I mean, how great was it that rest was in an open workout, right? That CrossFit's recognizing the value of these things. But we as instructors, we have to evolve at the tip of the spear. And that's what I like about it. I am always putting cutting edge things that I learn um, from athletes that I coach. Um, and that's what's part of this course. Um, I do. I love the course. It's a, a one-day course. And um, we're loading um, more courses. We just loaded three more courses today. But there's a bunch more in Europe and throughout the U.S. is coming up. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, I've been playing around also with putting that course online. Um, just because um, there's a lot of demand for it. And honestly, I'd like to do a level two. Um, I've talked to Connor Murphy about, you know, co-coaching that with me. Um, I would like to move into other spaces of it. We've got about 3,000 people that have already gone through the course. And so there's decent numbers that are out there. And if I did an online one, then we can do a more, 
intensive version of it. I believe that there's, <clears throat> in this sport of CrossFit, there's going to be consolidation um, at some point. Um, and I think that the value at these gyms where I go, it's the coaches that are these smart ones, the ones like the people that are spending time an hour today to listen, these ones that want to learn. Um, that's where I think the action is long-term. Those are the ones that are going to flourish and dominate. And there's the ones that are going to make the money. And that's what I want to do is I, I myself, I want to drive into that next layer of knowledge too. I mean, for my own sake. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, again, aerobiccapacity.com. I, like I said, I, I, what we've talked about, I dive into that detail on the courses. I, I really genuinely love it. It's a true experience. And, um, I just did one in Charleston, um, South Carolina and what a great time that was. I, I, I love the course. Um, and, and that whole day for me is a treat. The, um, the Keala Foundation, the Ultimate Hawaiian Trail Run, that, that is something coming up um, middle of September every year. Um, I think this is the sixth year. I've done it every year. And it's the cause that, that Heidi, my wife, and I contribute into. Um, and it's not just financial contribution. It's, it's really about time. And I have always given into charity. And I don't know about everybody here on the, on the, on the call, but charity is an interesting thing. Um, you know, you always hear about it, um, and people doing things, you know, charitable contributions and things, but the key, the number one thing that you can do is immerse yourself in it and commit time. I can't, I can't even begin to tell you the level of satisfaction and, and, and happiness. And I can't, well, I can't describe the happiness from, from coming out of it because let's face it, that cause over there is, is awful and it's so sad and, and it's a huge bummer. But when you contribute time for people that genuinely need help, that level of feeling, that happiness, I just, I really encourage you, not just in the trail run, but go find something if you don't have something where you can immerse yourself into it and the back end happiness, it changed, it's changed our lives and, and in a good way. It makes me want to give more time and to be more generous and be more open and caring. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's been a wonderful thing for me, as heart-wrenching as it is. And, and um, yeah, check it out. And if you could ever make it over to that event, these kids and, and the war zone that they're in, is, I, I, it's beyond description of what's happening to them. And the Hawaiian families are going to disappear from drug, alcohol, and suicide, and murder. They're gonna disappear, and it's happening on a rapid rate, that whole culture. And it's, it's yeah, the dynamics of how it's happening is, is just, it's, it's remarkable how awful it is. But like I said, for me and, and Heidi, it's, it's incredibly enriching. And I, I really encourage you, not just that, you know, charitable foundation but any foundation if you immerse yourselves i just it's the most rewarding thing i've ever done well hopefully this is up there as one of the most rewarding things you've ever done just under giving back to charity <laughs> <laughs> but speaking for our entire group and for and todd and kate who's going to be on the call um we just want to let you know we truly appreciate your time and I learned a ton and I've seen you talk and I look forward to hearing you talk again on Watt on the Waves. 
I don't look forward to incorporating any of that running that you talked about into the workout, but <laughs> as long as it helps me beat Todd in the 2020 Open, I'm happy. So thank you it. so much, Chris. Love it. Thank you so much. Always uh, good, man. Always good. A bunch, of our, a bunch of our people are telling you they'll see you on the boat. So thank you, guys. I love it. I love it. Thank you, everyone. All right. See you, Chase. Bye. Thanks again for listening to Best Hour of Their Day. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, one more time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send us any feedback you have to at Best Hour of Their Day on Instagram and Best Hour of Their Day at gmail.com if you want to shoot us an email. We appreciate you. Thanks again. Have a great rest of your day.